As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. This season, the world's biggest football podcast network is even bigger. Alongside our three weekly episodes of Totally and the two Totally Football League shows, we've got three episodes of the all-new Athletic Football Podcast with Mark Chapman. Adam Hurry's Football Clichés will now be with you on Mondays and Wednesdays. There'll be two lots of Michael Cox on our Tactics podcast and we've revamped our FPL and women's football shows. Our Liverpool, Man United, Chelsea and Tottenham club podcasts are now twice a week. And don't forget, we've also got our TIFO, Offside Rule and Football Manager shows too. There are also amazing new series with both Kelly Cates and Jackie Oatley coming up later in the year, so stay tuned for those. You can listen to all of these podcasts across our network in all the usual places or ad-free on The Athletic app. The Athletic, the world's biggest football podcast network. A new Totally Football Show. Today, Brighton Rock... Reds on a roll, Chelsea Lukaku, Arsenal Lukaku, and so do Spurs jerseys too, and other thoughts from the second round of this Premier League season, plus other stories like Tammy Abraham having the Tam of his life over in Rome, and much, much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Monday the 23rd of August, listener. Uh, do hope you're having a great time. This is totally kicking the week off with Big Dan's story. Hello, Stotzer. Hello, James. All right. Uh, also with us, uh, Matt Davis-Adams, equally sizable. Hello, Matt. Hello, James. And joining us uh, today, it's the Mirror's European football correspondent, Colin Miller. How are you doing, Colin? I'm not too bad, thanks, James. Thanks for having me on the show. Excellent. No, no, no. Thank you for coming on. Uh, a lot of top content from you, uh, not least your impassioned uh, thoughts on the Europa Conference League. Uh, also later on, we'll be hearing from Nick Millar, uh, no relation, our special correspondent at Wolves Spurs, which actually wasn't on the telly. How much of a shock was that to you, Matt Davis-Adams? Yeah, I mean, I was en route to the Emirates. So I'm only just finding this out now, but it feels uh, a very novel concept to have an untelevised Premier League game. I, I was thinking uh, on the way back 
uh, on the train back up there. I'm so pleased we don't have those awful quarter past seven Sunday night pay-per-view in front of an empty stadium kickoff games that we had to try and uh, make some kind of sense of last season. It, it is quite nice to, right. to go for the less. Are you talking about Serie A? Because they did have that. <laughs> it was a really good game, actually. Roma Fiorentina. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm sure that was fantastic. I was more thinking Arsenal Burnley or whoever it was last uh, season. Where yeah. It was a bit of a bit of a slog. Dark times, Matt. Dark times. But they're, thankfully, they're, they're for the moment behind us. And we just enjoyed, I, I think, a fairly entertaining set of fixtures once again. Let's have a quick check on the scores. Saturday, there were 2-0 wins for Liverpool against Burnley. Aston Villa over Newcastle and Brighton at home to Watford. Elsewhere, 0-0 at Selhurst Park between Palace and Brentford. 2-2 at Ellen Road for Leeds and Everton. And then Man City did Norwich 5-0 at tea time. Sunday, Spurs, this will be new to you, Matt, but they won at Wolves 1-0. Man United got held 1-1 by plucky Southampton. And Arsenal-Chelsea ended 2-0 to the Blues. No points and no goals yet for Arsenal, Wolves and Norwich. When can we look at the league table, Daniel? Uh, Six games, I think. That's when we're allowed to form big opinions. Among things you shouldn't really be looking at at this early stage are some of the kits that we've been seeing. Uh, Man United, I think, perplexed a lot of people. I don't know what you felt about their yellow and blue ensemble or Spurs in their... Kind of late night kebab shop pavement coloured uh, kit at Molyneux. Have you seen that yet? Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit of a nice one. I I quite like the Man United away kit. It's the yellow shorts that really that really seem to be a bit of a, a bit of a clash there. It's not not very easy on the eye. And, and then black socks with so you got blue shirt and yellow shorts and then black socks. Very much um, following the the Alex Ferguson away at Southampton warning of desperately wanting to be seen so maybe that's why they went for the yellow shorts just in case oh yeah right day glow shorts yeah lovely all right uh, well anyway all of this is of very minor importance when compared to big fixtures like the one that matt just referenced at the emirates sunday afternoon when arsenal took on chelsea a 2-0 victory for the blues by 20 minutes in we had the first and possibly not the last booze of the season from the home fans matt what kind of noise were you making watching Chelsea at this point? Um, there was a sort of purr, I would say, but I was being quite reserved because I was in the press box, so decorum's important. But actually, the first sort of 10 minutes of the game, the Emirates was legitimately raucous. Um, obviously, it was the first home game with a full house in, in a long time, and I guess that's why. But I was almost shocked by how noisy it was. But yeah, then as soon as the first pass goes astray, obviously, everything changed and uh, and Chelsea sort of allowed Arsenal to, to punch themselves out within about 10 or 15 minutes of the game and, and they were able to win it without leaving third or fourth gear very often, at least. The Lukaku goal obviously obviously settled things down nicely and, and yeah, Rhys James having set that one up then scored a belter and as soon as that went in, Chelsea felt that they could play the game in cruise control and, and so they didn't need to do much more and, and just watch Arsenal kind of self-destruct in a, in a way that was grimly predictable. Hmm. Lukaku straight into the starting lineup and straight onto the score sheet as well, and playing like he's been there for ages rather than not having been there for ages. I spoke to him afterwards, and he said that it was twelve years to the day since he scored his first professional goal in football for Anderlecht, and he realised that this morning. So he thought that it would give him a good chance of scoring. But yeah, to say that he'd had forty-five minutes of pre-season and they were for Inter. It was pretty impressive the way that he was able to so quickly become the reference point 
for the Chelsea team and so quickly look like what they've been missing. I mean, it helps if you've got Kai Havertz and Mason Mount either side of you making your life easier and, and Reese James putting in seven crosses during the game. But yeah, fitted like a glove by the looks of things. Yeah, I also I think one thing that maybe we... <laughs> he's a completely different player than he was in his final season at Manchester United. One thing that many people may have overlooked and actually surprised me a little bit today is just how selfless he was. You know, there were a number of times when he drove from deep on the right-hand side, which is his want, and you thought, you know, you could just shape a shot there, far corner, and he consistently looked for that runner kind of looping in, kind of underlapping him. And I think there were two or three times where he kind of looked up after that thinking, well, I'm going to get the return pass here. And actually, whoever it was, whether it was Kai Havertz or, or Mason Mount, or I think Reese James what, took a shot. Um, but that understanding is only ever going to come because he he consistently manages to start moves and then find himself about seven or eight yards from goal ahead of his marker or with a good enough chance to steal a march on that marker. And that's it's pretty daunting for the rest of the Premier League, I think. I think as well that a lot has been made about what Lukaku will bring to Chelsea on the pitch in terms of his goal output and providing that sort of focal point of attack. But I think another important factor here is that Lukaku is a big personality. He's somebody who who imposes himself on a dressing room and he's somebody who's quite vocal. Um, he's got a lot to say. And I think that's quite important when you look at the other players that Chelsea have in attack, the likes of Mason Mount, Kai Havertz, even Timo Werner, Christian Pulisic. These, these are guys who are all, all very talented and they're very skillful, but... I don't think there's really any of them are particularly assertive personalities. And, and I think that, that that's important just in terms of having a little bit of a ruthless streak. And I think Lukaku brings that. And I think it's it's important for him within the dynamics of a dressing room to come in and to be able to assert himself in, in that dressing room. And I think that's probably where he's done best throughout his career. And I think that's something that he, he's going to bring. He's going to bring to Chelsea. And it'll be more than just what he does on the pitch, but, but how he sort of... How he sort of leads the line, not 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 just not just leading the attack, but but bringing others in and offering them encouragement as well, advice on the pitch because he's a, he's a leader in that sense. And whilst Chelsea mm. probably have quite a lot of that in defence and midfield, it has been absent a little bit in the final third, I think. Yeah, he famously faced Ibra down at, at San Siro. Uh, Mark Burridge asks, "Is this Chelsea squad the most well-rounded we've ever seen in the Premier League?" I think Mark. Presumably means just within, you know, past, within the kind of parameters of, of past Chelsea sides. Matt, you'd be the expert here. What do you think? Would this Chelsea team beat the other Chelsea teams in a big Chelsea knockout tourney? Well, I'd say they're probably quite slightly different questions in that there were previous Chelsea squads that had stronger spines, but maybe weren't as well-rounded. So if you're giving them five subs mm. in the game, like last season, then right. maybe this current iteration of Chelsea would win. But yeah, it's... I mean, Thomas Tuchel says it's not depth, it's just quality. I'm not sure that I, I necessarily agree with him because I think they've got both. But, uh, you know, he's saying, oh, we, we missed Christian Pulisic today, but Ziyech, luckily, was uh, was able to come back in. But in every position, there are at least two players of comparable quality. And that seems quite a rarity in, in football these days. You know, you think maybe back to kind of 90s Man United, who were maybe the last team to, to have that. But certainly at the moment, it looks... It looks pretty good. Although, having said that, you know who who's the out and out replacement for Lukaku if he gets injured? There isn't one. We're talking about what a what a reference point he's become for the team so quickly. It only takes one bad tackle, and and all of a sudden that's lost again. And we're we're talking about whether Timo Werner can play through the middle. So they do have great strength in depth in every position, but centre forward, perhaps. Narrator's voice: He can't. Hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, we're only two games into the season and Brentford also beat Arsenal a 2-0, but it is a, a cracking beginning to this campaign for Chelsea. As for Arsenal, statistically, I read that it's the worst start in their entire history. They are, though, hampered by absences, Daniel. A bit of context for the Gunners? Yeah, I mean, back of fag packet stuff, but I think you could put a pretty good 11 of players that either didn't start or let's say were taken off injured. You've got Aaron Ramsdale, you've got Kieran Tierney went off injured, Hector Bellerin wasn't there, Gabriel, Noel Nenny, no party, no Lacazette, no Aubameyang, no Odegaard. They were missing an awful lot of players. Mikel Arteta said after the game, this was a kind of, you know, this was like an Arsenal team like we've never seen before, which kind of writing his own punchline in that we've seen this pretty much every week for the last three years. But that aside, I take his point. They've had a rotten pre-season. They've had a rotten spell with injuries. They've bought players, probably quite brave of him, and that they've, they've bought exclusively players aged 23 and under to look to the future. And on current form, y- y- it takes a double dose of optimism to say that Arteta is going to see anything other than that, you know, beyond the short term of that future, because it does just feel like they've taken several steps back and they're not a club that can afford to do that quite simply with with the expectations they have and um, with how far they've already fallen. I think as well that the the game on Sunday showed the real difference that there is between the two clubs in terms of players, in terms of coaching, in terms of recruitment and even ability to sell players. I mean, Chelsea selling Tammy Abraham for 40 million euros, um, getting rid of Olivier Giroud. They, 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 can, they can move on players that they don't want, which then allows them to bring in the players they do. And Arsenal haven't been able to do that. And it was only two years ago that these two teams were playing in the Europa League final, of course, and only two points separated them at the, the final end of that Premier League season. So these were these were two clubs who were pretty much neck and neck in 2019. And since then, Chelsea have gone on to win the Champions League, to be in the position they are now, where they're looking incredibly strong. And Arsenal have recorded back-to-back eighth-place finishes. And they've really, they've almost fallen off a cliff. And, and it's really hard to pinpoint one moment that has gone wrong in that. It has been such a a gradual long-term decline at the club whereby even this summer they've spent so much money in bringing players in and, and it's really hard to judge have they really added to, to the team have they improved the team from last year I mean, obviously the jury's still out on that but you know they, they, they sort of seem to me to be in a place where they can't really get anything right to, to, to elevate themselves back into that top four they're not they're not fishing in the same market as Man United as Chelsea as Man City um, for players and, and that's that's something that's 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 a big concern how quickly the mediocrity almost has seemed to become the norm wasn't a sellout either today which you, you would assume that it always would be Arsenal against Chelsea uh, I think came in officially at 58,000 and change but I know there were still tickets on general sale um, as early as Sunday morning I think so that that's a sign in and of itself that a bit of decay setting in possibly they've also got an issue in that they across their recent history every bad result always seems because of the situation behind the scenes and everything every result or bad result feels that it is bigger than the 90 minutes it feels like something symbolic it feels like we we have to make these judgments because they feel appropriate so starting the season with you know a loss at Brentford and then losing at home to Chelsea and they're away at Manchester City next weekend it's quite easy to see how, you know, it is only three games, but those three games, if they're second bottom or bottom of the league after three games, that does feel significant. It doesn't just feel like something they can click out of because 
you know, Arsenal players themselves, when they've left the club, have said time and time again. I even, you know, I saw some quotes from from Bakari Sanya today saying everyone's just waiting for this to happen. So it does affect them. Any word on what the president of Rwanda makes of it all, Colin? Any updates there? <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, shirt sleeve sponsor, of course. Um, well, of course, you could also always clean up uh, Rwanda's image in an international stage if, if Arsenal did quite well. But um, no, it's an interesting one. I, I, what I find to be quite surprising was how Arsenal fans seem to be so accepting that Joe Woolock was, was sold in Newcastle this summer. Now, I, I don't. I don't think individually he obviously hasn't done anything in, in Arsenal's first team to, to, to be like right. Well, if we if we receive a bid north of twenty million, you know that that could be seen as a good seal. But whenever whenever fans are justifying bringing in somebody like Aaron Ramsdale to meet a, a homegrown quota of English players in their squad, and you kind of think, well, Joe Willock was loaned to Newcastle in January. Um, he came in and he made such a huge impact to that team. And I know that coming into Newcastle's midfield and coming into Arsenal's midfield and making an impact. Is a, is a totally different scenario, but he's a he's a guy that could easily hit double figures this season in terms of goals, and that's coming from midfield. And to just to sort of move him on so so readily seems seems to me to be a bit a, a bit of a hasty decision. Uh, and I say that in the context of Emmy Martinez being sold last summer after that really short strong run of form he had in the Arsenal first team, and then they're like, well, his market value is obviously peaked at this point, so we'll cash in. And I just wonder. Is that is that going to be what we're looking at in a year again and saying oh, that's what they've done with Willock? And Martin Odegaard, obviously, has been brought in from Real Madrid, and he's somebody that in La Liga two years ago when he was on loan at Real Sociedad, he was he was fantastic. He was one of the best players in the division. He made such an impact at that team. Is that the best place for him to develop as a player? Is it is it the best place where he can make an impact? And and it's almost because of the environment that Arsenal have at the minute. We're seeing everything through a negative lens, and it's kind of like a self perpetuating mm. issue. I think. All right. Well, it's only two games in, in, into the season. A, a lot of good things can happen, even for the Gunners, just as they did indeed last time out when they when they made quite the recovery in the second part of the season. But just wait until after Wednesday at West Brom in the uh, League Cup, which is coming up for. For Arsenal, uh, first time they've appeared in the second round of the League Cup since 1995. Normally they get a bye because of European commitments, but uh, well. Anyway, after West Brom in the League Cup on Wednesday, as Daniel mentioned, they've got Man City next. Speaking of whom, they had a 5-0 win uh, at home to Norwich. Canaries now have had two defeats, eight goals conceded and none scored. Uh, Grealish got one in off his knee. Uh, Tim Krul, own goal to open the scoring off Jesus. Laporte, Sterling and Mahrez also on the score sheet. Kevin De Bruyne watching from the stands. Beyond the scorers, the fact that Grealish got his start and, and a goal, Jesus, Gabriel Jesus was was looking good. Yeah, he looked, he looked really good. And, and you kind of wanted to believe the praise that was lavished upon him by his manager after the game if it weren't for the fact that his manager lavishes the same praise on pretty much every player he's ever worked with at some point so it becomes difficult to to accept it as truth but uh, it was interesting that Pep was talking about him playing in the wide positions because obviously he's got nine on his back and before he's, he's been the the substitute for Aguero, isn't it? And I just wondered whether that was that was maybe some kind of hint of, you know, we are looking at getting a striker. It's not going to be Gabriel Jesus. But are they in the market for a striker? I've not read anything about that. <laughs> yeah, City. apparently. Um, yeah, well, Gabriel Jesus but will we'll never have a, as much fun as he did on Saturday, I don't think. He got one left back subbed off at half time, uh, and the other one, Barley Mumba, which sounds like a really fun dance, came on and, um, and didn't do much better. 
City I won't read too much into them beating Norwich at home and scoring five because they often do that. But I did think it was interesting how they kind of the the great City sides always had that trick of when their attack was purring, they worked it to the byline and pulled it back, and someone was six yards out, either you know either to cause enough damage for for an own goal or a shot off the knee of Grealish or a, a standard finish from Sterling. But obviously with Gabriel Jesus playing wide right, they actually did a mirror of, of their normal system. They always used to do that down the left wing where, where you know, David Silva would drift left or and Sané would be there or Sterling would be there to pull the ball back. And yeah, it, it worked really, really well, I have to say. I mean, it helps that Dimitros Janoulis had a, had a wretched half. I think Daniel Farker said after the game that he only didn't bring him off before half time because it would have embarrassed him, which I kind of think you're giving the game away if you then say that in your post match interview. Um, yeah, Norwich were, were rotten, but it, it is a good sign for City that they're still working that move, I think, and doing it on the other flank. Mm. Fun fact since Guardiola took over at City in 2016, his side have been responsible for almost half of the five goals or more winning margins. In the Premier League. Is that English? I think it is. You know what I mean anyway. Any other thoughts on Man City or should we talk about Liverpool and their 2-0 victory at Anfield over Burnley? I was just going to say about Jack Grealish. I find I find his celebration a little bit odd in the sense that he was sort of silencing the doubters. Um, I, I don't really know who's doubting Jack Grealish at this point. I, th- I thought that during the during the Euros, he was almost the, the, the sort of golden boy of England, and everybody was sort of wishing him well. So, I mean, it, right. it was a little bit of a little bit of a fortunate goal, but but um, so the celebration was him sticking his fingers in his ears. I thought, yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe he's just not used to fans. Or I, I must admit, I thought it was more of a I'm not hearing all the noise. Probably re- referring to people mentioning the fact that he's the most expensive English player ever, and that. Maybe you're right. Maybe I misinterpreted that. He should have really have had a message on his shirt of explanation <laughs> if you're going to do that. <laughs> at least. There's no point being cryptic with this, Jack. I mentioned Liverpool with their 2-0 victory over Burnley. Goals from Diogo Jota and Sadio Mane sealing the points on 69 minutes. Assists from the two full-backs. Nature is healing and, and all that. I know there was a lot of excitement uh, with Burnley's... 1 to 11 lineup the first team since Charlton way back in the 90s to start Premier League games with players whose squad numbers were 1 to 11 what else do you want to pick out from this from either team fellas i think Harvey Elliott's performance probably deserves some praise we should be aware kind of overhyping things i think particularly with big clubs and, and maybe particularly particularly with Liverpool there is a a tendency to maybe rush that praise on uh, and Elliot may well not be in the team again in three weeks and so maybe you know just coming off the bench for a few minutes but he was he was exceptional he was their creative force um, and he is only 18 years old Klopp has been very insistent this summer that you know, despite the the protestations from supporters that FSG have, have slightly slept on the job in terms of investing in the in the first team that you know the flip side of that is it gives an opportunity to those youngsters and Elliot certainly grabbed it with both hands. He was fantastic on loan last season in the Championship, and he seems to have he seems to have a know-how. I think there was a, there was a tendency, I think, early on in his career, and I am saying that about an eighteen-year-old, so I'm aware of the irony. But he he kind of held onto the ball a little bit too long. He wanted too many touches. He was the opposite at the weekend. I think he was releasing it really quickly. He was passing and moving, and 
Yeah, he looks really good. He looks, you know, when you look at a midfield that, that didn't have, obviously, no Wijnaldum, but also didn't have Curtis Jones and didn't have um, Fabinho in. There is some squad depth there, which is what Klopp has been trying to tell Liverpool supporters all along, I think. I think that shows the benefit of a good a good championship loan as well, like like Elliot had last year. What Daniel said about him not holding on to the ball too long that that's just not something that's really afforded to you in the championship. So that's probably sharpened him in that sense. And he got seven goals and eleven assists in a, a pretty average Blackburn team last season. So one to watch. I'm not having Klopp without his glasses, by the way. I know that was last week, but it uh, doesn't sit right with me at all. No, it, I think it's only this week that has really sunk in. How how disconcerting it is. Now, I'm not looking at the table at the moment, uh, but if I was, I'd be seeing up there with Chelsea and Liverpool, Spurs, who we'll be talking about a bit later on, and Brighton, who are up next on this Totally Football show. Ah, the summer was fun, wasn't it? No allegiances, everyone getting behind England, three lions being sung everywhere. But now the Premier League is back, get Grealish off the bench, ah, he can stay on it at City. Pickford might have been a safe pair of hands, now he's just a pair. And enough of Jules Rimet dreaming, now it's our turn to dream. So kiss goodbye to that vomit-inducing unity and welcome back proper football. Let's celebrate flair on the grass, not a flare up the... <coughs> Paddy Power! 18plusbegumbleaware.org This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Opasuma's won it, and more pays in. Should be two. It is two. No mistake from more pay. Two in two for the Frenchman, and easy as that for the Albion. Brighton looking as peerless as the night of that big fire on the seafront uh, this weekend. Beating Watford 2-0 at the Amex. Shane Duffy and Neil Mope. It's the first time that Brighton have started a top division season with two wins out of two in their history. Uh, three wins out of three, actually, if you include them getting £50 million for Ben White. But wh- however you want to frame it, it's been brilliant. And the, the startling thing is the way that they've gone from being a side who absolutely couldn't finish but play very attractive football to one that still do the attractive football stuff but actually puts the ball in the net. Duncan Alexander uh, pointing out that they have scored with four of their last seven shots now. What's going on? Well, the the, the key at the weekend, certainly for, for Neil Mopé's goal, was winning the ball incredibly high at the pitch before the defence could settle. Um, there are many things that baffle me about top-flight football, but Yves Bissouma not being targeted by, insert big club's name here, this summer is is beyond me. Um, there were reports that Brighton were happy to take £40 million for him. In Enoch Mwepu, they, they'd seemingly already bought a replacement or, at the moment, you know, a backup for for Bissouma. But he's just so, so good. And it was, he, it was his, you know, it was his interception or tackle high up the pitch that that pressured Watford and, and gave Mopé a pretty easy opportunity to score. We should say that Mopé went off with a um, an injury, which... I don't know. I mean, he's not the most clinical of Premier League strikers, but maybe that might signal a return to bad old Brighton again in terms of finishing chances. But Graham Potter will say, look, this was always coming. This is just the alternative rubber of the green that we felt we should have had last season. We probably should have drawn one of these games this season and we've, we've won both. But this has been coming for some time. And given the body of his work and, and how insistent he was that this was going to come to fruition, you you can't really fault him for it. 
there's clubs in the in the Premier League, the sort of lower lower reaches that we traditionally think of the of the Premier League that feel a bit stale, like like Wolves and Burnley and and Newcastle and Brighton are kind of the exact opposite of that at the moment. I think they seem to make good buys. They've obviously got a good manager. It seems to be a well-run club. And as you say, James, they've got £50 million for Ben White. They've still got mm. Lewis Duncan, Adam Webster, are two excellent centre-halves, and the Shane Duffy renaissance, which is nice to see. You know, couldn't get in the Celtic team back end of last year. Uh, and here he is looking like he's never been away. So, yeah, I think Brighton are in for a decent season. Nice. How decent do you think, Matt? Go on. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, between ninth and twelfth, I would say. But what I want from teams like Brighton and and I would put Everton in this category as well. Teams like that, you want them to have a good cup run. You know, Brighton got to the FA Cup semi final, didn't they, a few years ago? But but that turns a decent season into a great season, I think. Uh, so I'd love to see them win the League Cup or something crazy if we can um, if we can stop Man City from competing in that this year. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, next up, let's stay down on the seaside. Uh, because also this weekend you had uh, Man United visiting Southampton at St Mary's, a 1-1 draw. Daniel, this was your favourite game of the weekend. Yes, yeah, it was. Uh, for, for a 1-1 draw, I thought it was brilliant. It kind of ebbed and flowed in, in exactly the way you didn't predict and that Manchester United started reasonably quickly and then Southampton kind of took control of the game and scored. United were, were sloppy and then as soon as United finally equalised, you kind of thought they would just put their foot down and dominate. And they tried to for maybe five or six minutes. But last 20 minutes, Southampton were absolutely brilliant. I, I feared that they didn't quite have the energy to to do that and to pin back United. But Adam Armstrong missed two really good chances, a, a one-on-one after Che Adams played him in and then a, a header from a corner in which he sort of semi-inexplicably headed it backwards rather than just straight forward into the goal, which was two yards away from him. But... Yeah, I thought it was a really, really good game. It, it kind of hammered home everything we know about United in that they never seemingly have control of a game. They just rely on individuals to do brilliant things and then the midfield makes you want to shake them up and down until they learn their lessons and that didn't happen. Mm. There's no Carl today. So, Colin, if you'd like to do the grumble about United in a, a second or two, uh, after we just hear a little bit more about Saints, who many people thought were going to be at the wrong end of a very, very... Well, one of their kind of nine nils or, or something in this match. Uh, Matt, perhaps you'd like to tell us about uh, Tino Livramento. Yeah, what a great pickup he is. Is it for four or five million pounds, I think? I, I'm, I'm assuming that Chelsea have probably inserted some kind of clause yeah, whereby yeah. they get first dibs on him. Um, mm. But yeah, he was Chelsea's Academy Player of the Year last year. And one of these... Examples that we've seen a lot at Chelsea, but I think we'll see a lot elsewhere, of players of his age and profile not being cowed by the clubs that they make their name at and, and putting their career first. You know, saw Mark Gurhey do the same thing by moving to Crystal Palace from Chelsea this summer, but I think Livramento will have been following the example of Tarek Lamptey, you know, going back to Brighton, who we've just spoken about. Um, yeah, Livramento can play right wing or he can play as a right back. Uh, he played for the England under-20s when he was 18, but I, I, he got on the Chelsea bench actually a couple of times towards the end of last season uh, and was somebody that they definitely had plans on on using. But fair play to him for for thinking, well, I've got the club captain and Reese James in my way, so I'd much rather go and actually play some first-team football rather than play under-23 football. And yeah, great, great bye-bye Southampton. And, and I think Southampton, by their willingness to to play young players, get to the front of the queue for players like that ahead of ahead of other clubs. 
uh, you know, say if somebody like Burnley were in for him or whatever, he, he would choose Southampton every time. Um, but somebody somebody to watch. He'll have, he'll have dips, obviously, as well. He's had two good games and he won't do that all the time. Southampton uh, won't play as well as he did on Sunday all the time. But a very, very shrewd piece of business Fr- from a club who've been known more for the players that they've sold in recent years than the, the players that they've bought. Mm. Well, so speaking of dips, not playing as well every game, this wasn't quite the same Man United that we saw on the opening weekend, Colin. No, uh, it, it wasn't. And I think it was always going to be a different game um, compared to Leeds because Leeds obviously played this sort of open, expansive style of football that, that leaves the space between the, the defence and midfield that, that United can exploit with Bruno Fernandes getting on the ball. And we saw last week with Mason Greenwood uh, dropping a bit deeper. But they lined up a little bit differently this week. I, I don't think I was the only one surprised by it, to see Anthony Martial um, being given a, a, a rare start and for Nemanja Matic to be brought back in central midfield. And and, and yes, there's, there's there's quite a few absentees, obviously Sancho and Varane not fully up to speed. So in terms of this game itself, I don't think we really learned too much from from United because they're going to be bringing more players back into the team. But one of the big arrivals at Old Trafford over the summer, actually I think was was Eric Ramsey, who's a who's a coach that came in uh, from Chelsea's under-23 team. He's very, very, very highly rated in coaching circles. And He's come in to be a sort of set-piece specialist um, for United. And last season, United conceded 14 goals from set-pieces in the Premier League. And only Leeds actually conceded more from those situations. So, and there was sort of analysis done that sort of shows that, roughly speaking, uh, for every goal in the league, that, that equates to about a point. So that's something that's been brought in. And whilst we didn't see that so much from a defensive point of view today, I thought that their attacking set-pieces looked a lot a lot more dangerous than they have done in the first half especially they had two or three real openings from deliveries from Fernandez and from Luke Shaw so I think if they can get that right that might stand them in quite good stead this season but one of the problems as well I think and to give praise to Southampton in this respect was obviously we spoke about um, about Armstrong coming in and replacing Danny Ings who's a massive loss but Armstrong and Shea Adams look like a, a really good um, partnership up front they're, they're certainly a handful and those are two strikers who did particularly well uh, in the championship. They had very good goal returns and, and they look to have sort of struck up quite a good understanding straight away. And I think a lot of the time when a team plays two up top, sometimes defences struggle a little bit with that in terms of in terms of how to handle that. Maybe they're more used to just a lone striker and, and trying to mark them out of the game. So it's a different challenge. Um, and I think we saw enough from Southampton today to suggest that it's not. It's certainly not all doom and gloom, and they've got a lot of a lot of fight about them, and and they they, they could have ended up winning the game actually, um, with with Armstrong's chances later on. So plenty to be positive about from Southampton, and I think from United, it's probably a case of just being a little bit more patient, um, and maybe more to come this season. I don't know if I'm being hypercritical of Solskjaer here, but I think if if Mason Greenwood starts that game as the centre forward rather than Martial, and Jaden Sancho starts on the right then they win that game. And you look at Thomas Tuchel, who brings in Lukaku, who's had 45 minutes of pre-season with Inter. He's not chained that much with Chelsea. Yes, he's in familiar circumstances and then he's played for Chelsea before. But then Sancho has lived in Manchester before. He, he should It shouldn't take him too long to settle. I just thought it's odd how Sancho's obviously been brought off the bench in both games. I just wonder if there's a kind of inherent conservatism that means that, you know, Varane hasn't, played a game yet and Sancho hasn't started a game yet so it is it is the same team as last year whereas Tuchel brings in a player and thinks well hang on a minute we've paid 100 million pounds for this kid that's because we want him and he improves our team so I'm playing Arsenal away I'm going to play him and he's going to score and we're going to win and 
I think this season more than any other, it's going to be incredibly tight. And these things matter. You know, drop points away at teams who you should be beating matters. And it, I, I just think it was two points dropped, really. Mm. Maybe they should bring in a coach for his team selections. I don't know. Is that that's the, that's the next next phase of speciality uh, coaching? Uh, United unbeaten on the road in twenty seven. Next weekend they'll be at Molyneux looking to see if they can break the record. Paul Pogba, meantime, setting a new record. He's the fastest player to reach five assists in any Premier League season ever. I've got a note here. He's out of contract next summer. Which you know you can combine those facts as you prefer. Matt, you watched United's under-23s play on Friday night and you saw a young man named Charlie, Charlie Savage. Incredible. I mean, this, this is Robbie Savage's son. He's got the uh, curtain haircut. He plays in central midfield. Uh, he wears number eight. He snaps into tackles. Uh, and after the game, he said a, a load of stuff that everybody else dismissed as nonsense. It was uncanny, um, really... <laughs> Really, really strange. Um, no, he looked quite good, actually. Uh, young Charlie Savage, a bit more cultured than his dad. They also, United's under-23s have also got Charlie Wellings, who is Richie Wellings, the Doncaster manager's son. Um, okay. And he used to be United youth as well. And not playing in the game on Friday, but Paul McShane, remember the old Republic of Ireland, whole Sunderland centre-back, 35 years old? He's been brought in as a playing coach for the under-23 hmm. side. So he basically has a little stroll for 45 minutes, uh, tells the players around him what they should be doing. And that sounds like a lovely old job for a player just approaching retirement. Uh, and, you know, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm a Man United player. Yeah, yeah, very good. Playing coach. Uh, yeah, so enjoyed that. But Charlie Savage, keep an eye out for him. And, and do Google image it because it is quite unsettling how much he looks like his dad, largely based yeah. on hair. Do you know where he honed his skills, Matt? In the Savage Garden. Hey, very good. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, next up on uh, the Totally Football Show, let's discover which daily occurrence hasn't happened in over a year. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Think of it as your protection against Arsenal doing an Arsenal. And in the words of Jennifer Aniston, here comes the science bit. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet is £10. Enhanced match odds are not included. Online exclusives only. T's and C's apply. And please be gambleaware.org. Right, Thursday night, Spurs took a bit of the shine off their new season when they got beaten 1-0 away at Passage Ferreira in Portugal in the Europa Conference League. Uh, Sunday, Tottenham then went to visit their new manager's old side, Wolves. Uh, Nick Miller went along 
to see the game and joins us now. Nick, bon dia, as they say in the black country. Uh, how was your trip to Molyneux? Uh, yes, it was. I, I uh, stocked up on pastel donatas and uh, here I am again. Brilliant. Uh, so we were just saying, which daily occurrence hasn't happened in over a year? Well, he hasn't scored since March 2020, but he got the only goal in this game. Yeah, it was, it was slightly odd because it, it seemed to be one of those classic kind of, you know, he's won the penalty there, left the boot dragging, but no one seemed to protest too much. But yeah, he was one of Spurs' better players, um, won the penalty really good defensively, uh, which you don't, which he was against Manchester City last weekend, but you don't necessarily associate with him. But um, but yeah, took the penalty very well as well. Okay, beyond that, what did you, what did you make of of Spurs? Did they get a little bit of their luster back after the disappointment on Thursday? Um, they weren't great. No, I mean it. It, it seemed to be a sort of. It felt like it was a performance that the you know the uh, fans at Molyneux would have seen before. It seemed to be a classic Nuno performance, in as much as they didn't look great. Basically, there was a lot of uh, sort of stout defending and a lot of long balls, and there wasn't a huge amount going on in midfield. And they only had, I think, six shots in the game. Um, there was and, and two of those, I think, came in in one move when Son and I think Bergwijn both had chances that they probably should have scored. So it wasn't. I, I think Spurs fans will have given up on the idea of the classic Tottenham free-flowing, nice attacking football uh, when Nuno was appointed. But these two games will have kind of scotched any last hope they would have that. I think they'll they kind of got to get used to this now. This is this is what they they have, and if it's you know it's been successful in these two games, and if it carries on being successful, then I'm sure they will um, they will cope with it. But um, yeah, it, it, I don't think they're going to be a, a fantastic watch for a lot of the season. Oh, all right. Uh, Harry Kane uh, came on with 18 minutes to go. Uh, I'm not sure, did he, did he do much in those 18 minutes? And also, uh, any further signs of development from Bruno Large's New Look Wolves? Kane, he didn't do a huge amount. He managed to get himself booked for time-wasting, which um, was pretty impressive for considering he's only on for, uh, as you said, 18 minutes. He missed one chance that was... Um, very similar, if you remember to that, that that chance he missed in the World Cup semi-final against Croatia. This time he uh, the keeper saved it rather than it hitting the post. He didn't do that much himself or that much you know notable himself. But Tottenham looked a slightly better team with with him there, slightly better because a more sort of cohesive unit. He obviously kind of did that playing as a number nine and number ten at the same time thing again, where he would act as a focal point and then kind of drop deep and link to play and was something that um, they had missed because Son didn't have his best game. He looked, he, he, he didn't look entirely fit, actually. He was kind of limping at various points, Son. But yeah, they, they sort of looked m- much better with uh, Kane and the team, obviously. Um, Wolves, I, they had a lot of shots again. They had, I think they had 25 shots in the game. But perhaps sort of worryingly, there was only really one where Hugo Lloris had to do any real goalkeeping, which is when uh, Adama Troyeri got behind the defence and went clean through and Lloris had to kind of come out and smother it. But yeah, you could look at it either way, I suppose, that it, you know, you know, they've had they've created this number of chances and, you know, as soon as Raul Jimenez gets his eye in and a couple of other players get to their their usual levels they'll start winning games and scoring you know scoring goals and winning games or you could look at it as that they are you know maybe this season's answer to Brighton right they're probably keeping their powder dry for Tuesday's big game Nick am I right 
Uh, yeah, uh, the powder will be not very dry by then. I, I would imagine they will have. Um, yeah, they'll they'll fill their boots against the um... bottom of the championship, Nottingham Forest. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, excellent stuff, uh, Nick. Uh, well, well done for uh, for that and and getting home safely. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, James. Forest for Wolves on Tuesday. Uh, on Thursday, meanwhile, Spurs will have the return leg of their Conference League playoff thing. We checked, and you are the fan of the Europa Conference League, Colin. Yes, yes, no. I I think this is a this is a really good concept by UEFA, and this is an organisation who don't exactly have the best uh, track record when it comes to making changes to the game, but. I think that in a way this has only really been discussed uh, from a point of view that this is almost like an like an inconvenience for Tottenham to be competing in because obviously there's a lot more games and it's a it's a bit of a drag on on your squad and your fitness levels. But uh, it, it is a good concept in the sense that it's going to be played in conjunction uh, but separate to, of course, from the Europa League. So the Europa League mm. has been slimmed down. So there's only eight uh, groups of four rather than twelve groups of four from the previous years. And the winners of each of those groups will automatically go in to a round of 16 rather than a round of 32. So there's an incentive to do well. There's going to be fewer matches for the teams that do win. And I think it's good because the Europa League had just become a bloated competition, I think. Um, It was very messy. So they've cleaned that format up. But the the main purpose of the Conference League being introduced was essentially to help the the sort of smaller nations of, of UEFA. And the reason that that was is because in previous years, there was a minimum of 26 nations being um, represented uh, in the group stages across the Champions League and the Europa League. The introduction of the Conference League means that there'll be 34 nations at a minimum represented. And that's that, that's important because, like, obviously, I, I've, I've followed Northern Irish football and reported on Northern Irish football. And the sums of money that are available um, through doing well in European competitions are completely dwarf anything that's available domestically. So if a club were to get through one or two rounds of European competition, you're talking about generating up to a million pounds in revenue. And what that does is it allows these clubs, and this is certainly happening in Northern Ireland, and it's also happening in the Republic of Ireland and also in Wales, whereby clubs can look to, to build their infrastructure, to build more academies and to get more young players coming through. And they're also building full-time setups, so so the leagues are starting to professionalise, and this is essentially a kind of a kind of trickle-down version of of the money coming into these leagues and being used to to build these infrastructures. Because I think in recent years there's been a growing gap between the sort of leading seven or eight nations and the rest, and it's becoming more pronounced with each each season in the Champions League, whereby you already know which two teams almost are going to qualify through each group stage. It's just solely dependent on the money and the, the revenue gap. So this is going to be this is going to be something that evens that out quite significantly, I think, in the years to come. And also, even from a Tottenham point of view, it's not a glamorous competition to be involved in. I mean, obviously, you were just in the Champions League final only, only two years ago. But at the same time, all summer, it's been talked about how Harry Kane hasn't won a trophy at the club throughout his career. And you sort of think, well, this is actually the perfect opportunity for him to end that drought. And from a fan's point of view, obviously, let's hope with the COVID restrictions lifting, there's so many away days in European games. And that's that's something that that's something's really important for people who follow the club as well. So I think it's a bit of a win-win. Um, obviously, we'll see how it, how it plays out in conjunction with the Europa League because, you know, it's going to be Thursday nights. But I think it's quite exciting. And if you kind of get away from the Premier League-centric view of it, I, I think it's a really good um, it's a really good introduction and, and hopefully it'll it'll pay benefits. 
everything that Colin has said is absolutely true and it's brilliant to to have the so-called lesser nations receiving some of that trickle-down effect but also Tottenham and Roma are the two favourites for the competition and that is a final with Jose Mourinho against Tottenham him stopping them <laughs> winning that trophy that I desperately desperately want to see Roma who are um a goal up from their first leg. They were away in Trabzon Spor. And, 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 of course, Thursday night we'll see the return at the Stadio Olimpico, which, as we kind of touched on before, it was the scene Sunday night for Roma's clash with Fiorentina on the opening weekend of the City House season. Tammy Abraham, uh, mm. hanging about for him. He, he'd only just come out of quarantine, so he hadn't even trained with his new teammates, but he was already straight into the starting lineup. And did it go well? Well, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Because next up, we're going to mop up the remaining stragglers, uh, all due respect, uh, from the Premier League weekend. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Mings helps it on. That is brilliant. Danny Ings. He is a proper goal scorer. And a scorer of proper goals. Oof, some lovely goals elsewhere in the Premier League this weekend. Uh, Aston Villa's 2-0 win over Newcastle, for example. Danny Ings, how about that flying uh, bicycle scissor kick thing? Yeah, beautiful. And representative of, of exactly what Villa were looking for with Danny Ings. Um, Ollie Watkins last season scored 14 goals by pretty much by a volume of chances. I think only four players in the Premier League had more shots than him. Whereas Danny Ings did it by finishing brilliantly. He He... I think only two players, Son and I think Anilkai Gundogan, had a better conversion of, of their shots, of the regular shot takers in the Premier League. And Villa basically look at that and think, well, if we can recreate Jack Grealish's chance creation through Emi Buendia, then if, if Ings gets the same quality chances than Watkins got and Watkins does some of the running down the line, then we've got, we've got someone who can score 20 Premier League goals. Ings scored 22 league goals in a season at Southampton, which is a, a heck of an achievement. And he can match that if, if he keeps up the kind of finishing on on Saturday, especially because it was a it was an absolutely brilliant volley. Ings is, I, I think, is an absolutely brilliant buy and, and was one of those transfers that did come out of absolutely nowhere. You know, we're used to these kind of interminable transfer sagas of rumour and counter-rumour and these micro-updates, but that was just bang, deal done, see you later, Jack Grealish, we bought a striker. 
Yeah, when Colin mentioned um, Harry Kane being booked for time wasting, I must admit I did wonder if it was about the the, the transfer saga. But um, <laughs> but uh, let's go live now to um, to Steve Bruce because he wasn't happy about the awarding of that penalty that El, El-, El- Ghazi converted for the, the second goal, or the, the kind of curious episode when Newcastle thought they'd been awarded a penalty when Emmy Martinez kind of schumachered Callum Wilson. But then it was all called back for an offside, although Martinez kept the yellow card for it. Steve? Well, we lost a game last week with a big talking point, and today we feel aggrieved too, you know. Same official involved, and and what we've got to do is be fair and have fairness. And that's all we're asking for a team, for our supporters who were magnificent today. And, you know, we didn't get it. We didn't get the look, didn't get the rub of the green. Um, he said... Yeah, uh, Measured, measured, measured words then from Steve Bruce, who must have been boiling. I, I, I was a bit confused about the Martinez thing. Uh, as I say, he absolutely clatters Callum Wilson, but then when they check it back on VAR, they see that Callum Wilson was fractionally offside. So they say, well, it's all irrelevant because that precedes the the foul essentially. Uh, but they leave the yellow card with Martinez because it's. Foul play, doesn't matter whether the ball's live or not, I guess. But hang on a sec, when Jordan Pickford did Van Dyke's knee, he didn't get anything for that at all because of the fact that the ball the play had already gone dead or something, didn't it? Yeah, they I think they've basically changed they they have changed the rules to allow that. Okay. So I think I think Martinez probably would have been a red card if it hadn't have been offside because it would have been well, I guess, kind of mm. denying of a goal-scoring opportunity or whatever. But yeah, so he's just given the yellow for the foul play. I still think he was a little bit lucky because it was, as you say, Schumacher. It was, I'm going to take everything here. So yeah, it was probably slightly unfortunate. But I think the rules have been changed to avoid that scenario where basically all bets are off if something's offside. You can do whatever you want because it's offside and therefore it, it can't be a, a yellow card or a red card. It can now. So he could have got Go a red card in theory if the if the if the conduct had been deemed violent enough. I see. All right. Well, two defeats out of two for Newcastle, but early days still. Speaking of cracking goals, though, how about Rafinha's equaliser in uh, that very exciting clash between Leeds and Everton? Who who enjoyed this one? Love this. I wish I'd been able to to see the ninety minutes of it. I just watched the highlights on Match of the Day, but it was great fun and and. I, I did think that Ellen Road is, is the stadium which seems the most different with supporters in it. And, and just visually, it, it just looks different. I know it was the first time in, in 17 years it had been full for a Premier League game. But um, yeah, the, the atmosphere there looked absolutely terrific. And the players seemed to feed off that. You know, even Dominic Calvert-Lewin looked like he was having a lovely old time as a, as a Sheffield boy, just, just winding people up. And yeah, the quality of the goals, absolutely outstanding in the game. And and Rafael Benitez, I think, is probably pretty satisfied with how his first couple of, of games have gone because that looked a really, really tricky one on paper given the circumstances of it. And and Everton don't look, you know, just a very pragmatic, dull, Benitez, well-drilled style team. There's a bit more to them. Um, absolutely loved the first part of Damari Gray's celebration where he just had <laughs> a, a, a huge smile on his face which sort of said, I've just scored a goal in the Premier League. This is great. And then totally, totally messed it up with his rubbish knee slide. But yeah, the first bit was mm. lovely to see. How difficult is it to do a knee slide? Because people do them with such apparent ease that when the, the knees actually stick to the turf and pivot you forward at great speed, it, it, it comes as a huge shot. But I imagine it takes a while to really 
perfect the kind of biting point of how far back you need to lean and that can you guys do knee slides have you ever knee slid yeah i think it's also a meteorological issue in that right. it needs to have rained it's like reading the green in golf isn't it yeah it needs to have rained very very okay. shortly before you attempt it i think or it be raining which would help i was going to say i do like matt as the ultimate modern consumer opening the show by saying he's glad that every game isn't on tv and then bemoaning the fact that he couldn't watch <laughs> 90 minutes of, of lee's everton on saturday <laughs> Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, you mentioned scoring here. He is the first Everton player to score in the first two league games of two seasons in a row. Stay with me on this. Since Dixie Dean, back in the 30s. Crikey. All right. Less eventful, meanwhile, the match at Selhurst Park, where Crystal Palace and Brentford saw out a goalless draw. Patrick Vieira's first home game in charge. He didn't lose, unlike his three predecessors on the... Palace bench in their opening game so so there's that Palace statistics show have only had 11 shots so far this season uh, which well Brentford had more than that on Saturday alone so there you go yeah. do you want to draw a hasty conclusion from that game Daniel go on yeah I mean we can't overstate how bigger job Vieira is taking on I think in trying to completely change that style I, I just picked out one statistic for the kind of week weekend column I was writing which is Last season, Crystal Palace were basically there was a there was no team like them in the Premier League in that they never switched play. They never switched the ball from the right to the left or left to the right. I think they did so like something like two hundred and ninety times, which was a hundred less than any other teams. They just never did it, and they are trying to do it. For example, under Vieira, they're they're on for they've only played two games, but um, one of them was away at Chelsea when they barely had the ball, and yet they're on to do it. I think 500 times this season. So it's only one statistic, but he is completely trying to change the play. And he's also trying to do it without Eze, who's not fully fit. Eze's got the long-term injury. And Michael Elise, who, who they signed in the summer, who's not fully fit yet. It's going to take a heck of an effort. I, I hope that he can marry up the need to get results in a emphatically results business um, with trying to change the style. Because you can see how it would be quite easy to for Palace if it's not working to think, well, we know that you can just make Palace safe because the last guy did that. So I hope they stick with it and I hope he gets results to justify them sticking with it because they're really interesting if they do. Goalless then against Brentford. Still to come from this round two, match day two of the season, you've got West Ham taking on Leicester. Eight o'clock on Monday night. Both clubs coming off opening day wins. The Hammers did the double over Leicester last season. It'll be interesting to see how that one goes. Uh, still to come, meanwhile, in this Totally Football show, a bit of inevitable Forest chat, we'll hear about Tammy Abraham's debut for Roma, what Ronaldo's up to and, and more. But first, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with producer Charlie. Thank you, James, for that thoroughly enjoyable review of the Premier League weekend. But in the words of Grace or Claxons, it's not over yet. Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power knows that all too well because we've got West Ham versus Leicester on Monday night. The Hammers beat the Foxes twice last season, not literally, thank goodness. 
Yeah, Charlie, they did indeed do the double over Leicester in the league last year, but this has all the makings of a very close encounter, as we saw in their five-goal thriller back in April, which West Ham won. Remember, listeners, this is last season's fifth versus sixth in the PL, locking Anters, and we've priced it up accordingly with the Hammers. The Snipe fans at 6-4, to four, while we make the Foxes 7-4. to four. Now, Mad Max sent Rice out for chips last week for the opener, but West Ham bounced back and checked themselves before the somewhat prolific Thomas Suchek inspired Moyes' men to a 4-2 win. Now, Suchek is 3-1 to one to score any time. Mm. Meanwhile, Brendan Rodgers' men fresh from winning the Community Shield, got three points on the board with a 1-0 win over Wolves thanks to a lively-looking Jamie Vardy and hats off to the physios at Leicester as Harvey Barnes has returned from injury looking good, if not better so far. Barnes at 8-1 to to be first goal scorer looks a little big to me. Both those teams could have been in this Thursday's Champions League group stage draw. Alas, no Moyes or Rodgers in Istanbul. In terms of the outright winner, is there any sense in putting money on anyone other than PSG? Listen, Charlie, PSG have added six Ballon d'Ors to their attacks, so safe to say Messi and Cole will be the ones to beat, no doubt. They are the favourites to lift all big ears at 11-4. to Now, Man City fell at the final hurdle last season and will be praying a certain Harry Kane can fire them over the line this year. Pep's men are 7-2. to Bayern are then third in the betting at 7-1, to but don't look as strong as they were a couple of years ago. Liverpool are 17-2 to and have big Virgil back, and he's sure to steady the ship. But can they go all the way without the numbers and smarts in the engine room? Chelsea look a bit of value at 17-2 to with Lukaku's goals added to a team who already tasted European glory back in May. And how about Manchester United at 14-1? to Sancho and Varane added to the ranks, a pacey attack with Bruno and Pogba looking to make things happen. In terms of the big three in La Liga, Real are 16-1, to Barca 22-1 to and Atletico are 20-1. to In Italy, Juve are 20-1 to with Serie A champions Inter, a massive 40-1. to Crikey! You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show, speaking of fun, is back and probably out by the time you hear this or a little bit later on. Listener, Matt, you're at the helm, aren't you? Sure am, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so hopefully I can go some way to, to setting the agenda and avoiding certain topics. Right. But not Nottingham Forest, who must be the biggest story in the championship right now, no? Or or is it Sheffield United? Oh, or is it Coventry? Hey, Colin, Coventry. Yeah, two two remarkable results. Obviously, to be back at the at the Rico Arena and this year, obviously the, the first the first one was over Nottingham Forest when they get a a ninety eighth minute winner, and you kind of think, oh, what a story! And then obviously the second game at home was was this weekend um, against Reading, and again it was a similar pattern of the game, one 0 down, get the equaliser in the second half, and you kind of think, oh, there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of injury time here. Ninety eighth minute again to get the winner. It's 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 an incredible story, and for what Coventry as a club and their fan base have been through in the past 15, 20 years. I mean, they 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 really. They've, they've really gone to hell and back and, and I think Daniel articulated it very well recently in, in one of his articles so it's, it's really it's, it's just really nice to see a club like that who've had such a loyal fan base for so long finally getting a bit of a bit of success and, and they've built a really good uh, squad as well this season and I think it's really really interesting recruitment policy and Mark Robbins has probably done a job that it's maybe gone a little bit under the radar and certainly a team to watch this season Mm, imagine that. Imagine being a f- loyal fan of a club and having been to hell and back in the last uh, 10, 20 years. I was just years, thinking eh? that. It must be nice to go and come back again. 
I'm looking forward to that, <laughs> the return leg of the journey, as it were. I've written a article, nice article about Coventry and a nice article about Blackburn. They've both already beaten Forest this season, so I'm, I'm <laughs> switching up my strategy from now on, I think. So, so Forest last year began the season with four straight defeats and fired their manager, and it's now four straight defeats, Daniel. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, I can't pretend to have any inside track, although I've heard a few whispers, but there's a, there's a reasonable chance that might happen again. Um, no. The good news of the weekend is that uh, we've signed James Garner on loan for Manchester United, who is a, a genuinely game-changing signing. But yeah, he might be he might be there a lot longer than the manager <laughs> who brought him in because... Um, Yes, it, it, it just hasn't worked. You know, I think I, I well, I'm sure I said when Hewton was appointed that my worry was that Forrest would drag him down quicker than he could pull us up. And, and that's exactly what's happened. Um, I think it was something like 68 minutes at the weekend and Forrest had had 35% of session and hadn't had a shot and ended up losing 1-0. And yes, it's it's as bad as it gets at the moment, he said, having also watched us in League One more recently than in the Premier League. Wow. All right, well... Still, I don't have to do a show on it. On yeah, I was just—I was going to say for, for clarity, if there are any other Forest fans listening, we will not be talking about Nottingham Forest on the Totally Football <laughs> League show tomorrow. We, we, we've got some vintage John Yems material. We'll stick with that instead. Brilliant. All right, uh, that will be airing uh, some point on Monday. On Tuesday, first thing you can enjoy. European thoughts uh, with Alvaro, uh, James, myself, and Julian Laurence with the Totally Football Show's European editions. There'll be lots of talking points from around the continent, but a big uh, big chunk of them on City Hour, which got its season finally underway this weekend. Eight games played so far from the opening set of fixtures, already 27 goals. Uh, Champions Inter, to many people's surprise, off to a bit of a flyer with a 4-0 win against Genoa, although they always do that against Genoa. Genoa's lost seven bits to San Siro. They've lost 27-0 on, on, on aggregate. Uh, Roma mentioned though their Sunday night game at home to Fiorentina they they took the lead and then Spurs fans will be shocked to hear they sort of sat back and let Fiorentina boss the game until Tammy Abraham sprang Veritu for the second one so uh, Tammy got the Fiorentina keeper sent off early doors and then he put Mkhitaryan through for Mkhitaryan's opening goal and then Veritu for another and then Mourinho brings him off and the Olympico gave him a little bit of a standing ovation, actually. Fabulous uh, debut performance. He hit the bar with a header as well. He was, yeah, he was, he was, he was, he was superb. He really was. Um, I'd also forgotten that, that Roma had signed Rui Patricio from Wolves, mm. uh, who made a couple of great saves in the second half at 1-1. Yeah, all in all, it was a, a vastly entertaining game and uh, what, the usual questions about, I guess, Mourinho, but a long way to go. Uh, only the opening weekend of the season. More matches coming up on Monday evening, including Sampdoria and Milan. But uh, a lot of interest as well around Juventus with Max Allegri back in charge of them. They began their campaign away at Udinese. And among the storylines here was the fact that Ronaldo started on the bench, uh, supposedly at his request, because he wants a move away now. Last week he was saying all this rubbish about me wanting a move away. Today I want to move away. Away, So they started without him and it didn't seem a problem at all. Dybala 
uh, got the opening goal, Quadrado with the second, and then Wojciech Chesney had a bit of a mare. I'm not sure if any of you saw this. First of all, he fails to collect a, a reasonably innocuous ball and then has to take down Udinese's Pereira. Then Udinese pull one back with a penalty. But then he gets caught in possession, Chesney, with a couple of Udinese players in front of him. Now, he Cruyff turns his way out of trouble and then to celebrate, kicks the ball straight at uh, I think it's Deo Lefeo who basically just equalises and then there you go, 2-2. In the 94th minute, Juve having brought on Ronaldo, see him leap to the skies to head the ball into the net and make it 3-2. But oh no, it's called back for offside. So there you go. What could be his final bit of dashing daring do in a Juventus shirt? I don't know. We'll have James Horncastle's thoughts on that and Jules on which French club is going to buy him. And all sorts of other things in Tuesday's European edition of the Totally Football Show. Alvar as well on, on La Liga. What will he be talking about, Colin? Massive Liga fan that you are. Uh, probably focusing on his own side, doing very, very well on Saturday night. Um, Athletic Club Bilbao, um, outplaying Barcelona for, for most of the match. Um, but again, it's an age-old problem for Athletic Club that they don't have a a sort of natural goal scorer in their team. So whilst they took the lead from a set piece, Barcelona got to draw Memphis Depay with a, a stunning equaliser, a really, really fearsome shot. But it was a really entertaining game and it was a it sort of set us set us up for this for this campaign whereby nobody nobody quite knows what what's gonna happen at the top, especially with uh, Messi obviously leaving Barcelona and is there gonna be a player that steps up? Is Memphis gonna be that player? But Barcelona again question marks from last season still hanging over them and is there gonna be a player that steps up and maybe Memphis can be that player and obviously Sergio Aguero's come back from injury. But it's gonna be a really competitive league this season. Um, I think there's four teams who genuine including Sevilla, I think who can genuinely have a go at the title. And again, it's it's one of those it's one of those things whereby the league is so competitive. There's so little between the top and bottom that there's going to be a lot of draws. There's going to be a lot of drop points, and it's going to be a lot of twists and turns. So it's definitely one to keep an eye on this year. Excellent. All right. Oh, here's a quick question just to finish off. Sasu Haino says for Colin Miller, will Moriba sit in the stands for this season, and who is to blame for his current situation? Um, Colin, just first of all, what is his current situation? What's going on? Well, Elias Mariba is a highly talented um, central midfielder who came through Barcelona's La Masaya youth system. He's captained all their youth teams and he got his first team debut um, in the second half of last season and he came into the squad and he made he made quite a good impact um, and he sort of took, took to the first team squad quite easily. But he's out of contract um, in a year's time and essentially with Barcelona's financial situation at the minute, which has been well documented, they can't offer him um, the wages that him and his representatives w- would like. And essentially, Barcelona have reacted to this being like, well, you know, what we're going to do is we want to price you at 20 million euros, which which is essentially unaffordable. No, no team is, no club is going in from at that price in this current market. And they're saying, like, if you're not going to sign the contract, you're not going to play. So he's going to be, as things stand, he's not going to be involved um, with Barcelona's first team this season. And he might not be able to get a move. And this is a guy who, at 16 years old, two years ago, um, got his latest contract by the club. And Barcelona had meant to fax the contract offer to his agent, but they made a mistake and they actually sent the fax to Espanyol instead. And Espanyol, obviously, they're, they're sort of Catalan rivals, as it were. And, 
and the, the officials at Espanol were, were shocked by by the sums of money being offered to this 16 year old it was more than, than than many of their first team players were on and I think that gives you an idea into how agents have begun to perceive Barcelona and what they can get away with in contract negotiations but obviously Juan Laporte is back as a new president they just can't afford to keep go, keep going with this spending so it's a really tricky situation to see how his future develops um i know rb leipzig have come in with an offer for him i don't know if barcelona will negotiate down on that or not but it is a real shame because this is an 18 year old kid and he's been caught sort of between a rock and a hard place and i don't think it's really his fault at all but this is going to be something that maybe that maybe sort of marks his time at the club a little bit and unless he does accept a new deal he, he could be he could be being out of football for up to a year which which is obviously a massive disappointment and benefits nobody well, yeah, that, that that sounds absolutely rotten. Fingers crossed then. Well, we'll hear more about that. And also, late news on Sunday as we record this, uh, get the fallout from the most controversial game probably on the continent this weekend, which was Nice-Marseille, the big Provencal derby, which had to be abandoned after fans came onto the field, all sorts of disruptions and stuff. And Julien will be telling us all about that and much, much more come Tuesday. That's it for today's show then. Matt, thank you ever so much for being with us. Pleasure as always. Excellent. Uh, Colin, thanks to you as well. And Daniel too. And you, listener. Lovely. All right. Producer Charlie at the controls as ever. And we'll be back on Tuesday with that European show. Uh, Check Matt out in the Football League show in the meantime. For now, though, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.